I'm Steve Lascazzo, and this is The Way. You're listening to This is The Way Podcast's discussion of Ahsoka Season 1, Episode 3. It's Part 3 called Time to Fly. A little about me. I started podcasting because I had left the broadcasting business and been out of it for a few years, and I wanted to hone some of the skills that I'd learned as a sports anchor and reporter, and I liked Star Wars. And there was this new show coming out, The Mandalorian. Since the debut of Disney Plus and that show, I've podcasted about dozens of shows, and for a time, I even kept track of what was happening in Marvel's Phase 4 with a separate podcast. My goal with today's podcast, the one you're listening to right now, is to have fun speculating about where the story of Ahsoka is heading. But also, I want to help explain what's happening on screen for people who might not keep up with all the Star Wars content especially those who skip anything animated. With the exception of the two-episode Week 1 premiere, Ahsoka releases weekly on Tuesday evenings in the U.S., and it will until all eight episodes are out. All this is Dave Filoni's fault. He's the unofficially official creator and caretaker of the Ahsoka character. He's also the creator of the show, the showrunner, he directed the premiere... He will be credited with episode 5 as well, and Filoni gets the writing credit on all 8 episodes of this first season. Steph Green directed episode 2 and episode 3. It's not her first work directing Star Wars television. She was behind the director chair in the Book of Boba Fett's second episode, The Tribes of Tatooine. The end credit sequence of Ahsoka is thanks to you, and company. We ran through some of the translated runic lettering in the part two episode recap and discussion, so if you're looking to hear about that and my crediting of you and company, tune into episode 137 of This Is The Way podcast. Join us! Come! The runtime shows up as 37 minutes in parentheses on the Disney Plus show page, but say it with me now. That's not how long it takes if you're only interested in action. From first shot to cut to credits actually runs 29 minutes, 23 seconds. In this episode, we're counting from when the T-6 appears in hyperspace to the cut to black from Balin's dour face on CTOS. We've gone from a little over 50 minutes to a little under 37 minutes in episode 2, and now... Less than 30. Just pointing it out. The description of the episode in Disney Plus reads, Hera tangles with New Republic politics while Ahsoka and Sabine Wren voyage to a distant planet. Director of photography is Quien Tran, who was co-DP last episode, but has the work all to herself for part three. Her husband is Star Wars voice actor Sam Regal, a Dungeons and Dragons player with critical role on YouTube and Twitch. Production design in the episode was handled by Dung Chang again. He worked on the first two with Andrew L. Jones, but Jones is out on this one, and Todd Chernyowski is in. Todd worked on Obi Wan Kenobi for Lucasfilm, and he's had experience with the first season of Star Trek Picard and four episodes of season one of Discovery. 
Editor, James D. Wilcox. His first Star Wars work. He did a lot of work for Damon Wayans' My Wife and Kids. And a lot of episodes of CSI and the new Hawaii Five-O. Visual effects supervisor for the first three episodes has been Richard Bluff. He's won primetime Emmy Awards for The Book of Boba Fett and The Mandalorian, but he's worked for Marvel on Doctor Strange, Agent Carter, and also led the Industrial Light and Magic team that created the Millennium Falcon Smugglers Run game for Galaxy's Edge. And yes, it's a ride, but it's also kind of a game. Music, once again, Kevin Kiner. Lots of animated Star Wars, live-action Star Trek, Stargate, CSI franchises. He's crushing it with work so far. And... I mentioned in our August 2023 news update podcast, the end credit music for Ahsoka is now available on several streaming platforms. Exactly. Additional voices for part three are credited as David W. Collins, Terry Douglas, Robin Atkin Downs, Helen Sadler, Sam Witwer, Matthew Wood, and Shelby Young. All right, now we've reached the cast section. What's your name, son? Ahsoka Tano is played in live action by Rosario Dawson. Natasha Lou Bordizo plays Sabine Wren. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is wearing green leku on her head to play the Twilight New Republic General Hera Syndulla. Ray Stevenson is Balin Skull. His apprentice, Shin Hati, is played by Ivana Sakno. Diana Lee Inosanto is the night sister of Dathomir descendant Morgan Elsbeth. She, like Dawson, is reprising her role that we first saw her play in live action during the same episode, Chapter 13, The Jedi, of the second season of The Mandalorian. David Tennant provides the voice for Hu Yang, just like he did for the Clone Wars animated series, and that is a 25,000-plus-year-old droid that once served the Jedi Order as a lightsaber architect. Evan Witten joins the main cast for this episode as Jason Sindula, and by that I mean he got his name specially put, you know, during the end credit sequence and not just in the black and white section. The character, Jason Sindula, is the son of Hera and former Jedi Padawan Caleb Doom, later known as Kanan Jarrus. That's something fans only learned in the epilogue at the end of the Rebels animated series. Genevieve O'Reilly is back as Mon Mothma. She first took over the role from Carolyn Blackiston, who was the original in Return of the Jedi, she of the famous Many Bothans Died line. O'Reilly was then cast for Revenge of the Sith to take over the role, but the scene was then cut from the Episode 3 final version. Many years later, when Rogue One was in production, she was brought back again and then reprised her role in Andor, which was a smash hit series with critics, and she's going to be back for season two when it's released next year on Disney+. That series is set before The Fall of the Empire, and this several years after. But as terrific as she was in that dangerous time setting up a rebellion... This character plays such a terrifically awful manager of corruption in the show. I mean, Genevieve O'Reilly's doing a great job portraying it, but Mon Mothma is just awful at her job. I really hope this role leads to more work for her because we're an unabashed Genevieve O'Reilly fan, just like we are for Captain Carson Teva, 
played by Paul Sun Hyung Lee. For my money, I don't know if it gets any better than when he sings When a Man Loves a Woman. I don't think he does that, does he? There are several people making their first appearances in Star Wars and getting speaking parts to boot. Nelson Lee plays Senator Hamato Ziono of Hosnian Prime. That's the planet that eventually gets wiped out of the solar system by Starkiller Base in The Force Awakens. The character, Ziono, is also the father of the main character of the Star Wars Resistance television series, that being Kazuda Ziono. Father? Father, you're alive! Y you survived the attack on Osnium Prime! Kazuda, my son, thank goodness you're safe. Are you all right? I'm fine, Father. How are you? D did the rest of the family make it? Yes. Lee doesn't appear to have worked in Star Wars yet, and he did not voice the character in Resistance, but he was a chancellor in the live-action Mulan for Disney, and years back was in Marvel's Blade television series, so he does have some connections to Lucasfilm, Marvel, Disney, and that whole family. Jacqueline and Tara Meehan plays Senator Rodrigo. No Star Wars that I could find. She played a doctor on Marvel's Jessica Jones Netflix series. Maurice Irvin plays Senator Mawood or Maywood. I couldn't find any Star Wars, Lucasfilm, or Marvel that I recognized in his resume. Same for First Officer Vic Hawkins, played in the episode by Nikan Robinson. Speaking of credits, there's one that podcasters and YouTubers seem obsessed with discussing. But this is the way podcast has been a step ahead of those guys since the first episode. I can't help but wonder... If Lucasfilm has been seeing all that speculation about Maroc and tried quelling it with a featuring credit for the mysterious masked man. I mentioned the performance credit in the This Is The Way podcast episode on part one, and I sent out a post on X last week about it. Paul Darnell is credited with a performance capture in the first episode, and in this one he's featuring. So he's playing this character and not just standing in for someone else so far. There could be a reveal later, but I think this credit is designed to take some of the wind out of the sails of the people making wild speculations like a brainwashed Ezra Bridger or reanimated Kanan Jarrus. Could it still end up being one of them? Well, Iman Asfani, who plays Ezra, is two inches too short, but both Freddie Prinze Jr. and Sam Witwer are six foot one, which is how tall Paul Darnell happens to be. Exactly. The evolution of Darnell's credit is, I think, a little rare, but there are people who provide just performances either in costume or for motion capture, and I like to mention those since it's something that you see on screen but don't always realize you're seeing it. Don Denninger is back, but for a change... She's not playing a Rodian. She's the Mon Cala pilot, Lieutenant Beta, the one standing next to First Officer Hawkins as he met with Hera in the episode. Denninger often plays Rodians for Filoni and Favreau. She appeared in The Book of Boba Fett, Season 3 of The Mandalorian, but mostly she does special effects work, fabrication, and puppetry, and she's been working in Hollywood since 1999, so it's nice to see her get an additional credit. Christopher Bartlett, he's 
I don't know. I don't know if I'd call him a legend, but he's a Star Wars regular at least. He's back once again, capturing his moves for digital artists. This time, he is a Home One protocol droid. Hey, speaking of droids, he can go about his business. You can go about your business. Move along. Move along. Move along. Disney Snap, previously on. Lucasfilm, Star Wars sequence, then Time to Fly begins with Ahsoka's T-6 flying in hyperspace. Inside the ship, Ahsoka walks into the common room where Sabine is doing some lightsaber training, but with a boken, a wooden training sword. The counts Hu Yang is using sound like they could come from a dojo, but using the closed captioning, I couldn't find any translation. His last command, however, I was sure I had heard before. Yate. Yate, yate, yoto. That language is called Ubi's in the Return of the Jedi closed captioning. It's Princess Leia speaking in Jabba's throne room when she's pretending to be Bausch the bounty hunter. Is the language Huyang speaking Ubi's? I don't know. Probably not. But. We've seen Jedi practicing forms before, and it's always been in basic, or what we know as English. They call it basic. When Mandalorians train, however, as in the Book of Boba Fett's fifth episode on the Glavis Ringworld, the armorer seems to be training using the Mandoa language. Solus. Sabine, she's Mandalorian, has gone through training before, but it's been with Kanan and Ezra, and it was definitely in basic. Every mistake is a limb lost. The blade is never at rest. <sighs> okay, let's go again. No, you better practice with Ezra first. All right. Why? Ezra, walk her through the forms. Kanan. Okay, ready position. Sabine. Ready position? Okay, great. Yeah, that's ready position. Now we go one, two... Kanan and Ezra are not Mandalorians. Sabine is eager to learn at that point in the Rebel story because she wants to be a leader after finding the Darksaber. This is before she gives it to Bo-Katan in that story. I read you, Hera. It's been a couple of days. I wanted to see how things are going. <sighs> Slowly. Ezra's still taking her through the basic forms with the training sabers. Training sabers? You mean those sticks you and Zed made? I'm being careful. Were you careful with Ezra? I don't remember him fighting with a stick. Well, maybe I'm trying to do things differently this time. Or maybe because she doesn't have the Force, you don't believe she can do this? No. The Force resides in all living things, but you have to be open to it. Sabine is blocked. Her mind is conflicted. She's so expressive and yet so tightly wound. She's so... Mandalorian. Ugh, very. I'll be sending out supplies. Is there anything specific that you need? Patience, understanding. Hmm. I'll see what I can do. Back then, Kanan pointed out, yeah, sure. Everyone has access to the Force. Literally everyone in the universe, except in Rebels, it was not just Hu Yang or anyone else that was around her knowing she's talentless. Even her surrogate mom Hera admits as much. Kanan is the father of Hera's son. 
Kanan is a Jedi. Kanan tries teaching Sabine, first with wooden swords, then with actual lightsabers. Can you feel it? That sword is old, heavy, but powerful. Respect its strength. Block low. High. Middle. High. Low. Middle. Good. Let's work on a series. Are you ready? Yes. Remember the forms Ezra taught you. Take ready position. We'll start slow. One, two, three, four, five, six. Faster. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. You're making it easy on me. Ready position. Just because Kanan decides he thinks Sabine is worth training didn't mean that he thought she was going to be a Jedi. And I know Ahsoka doesn't either, but something you notice, or at least I noticed while collecting the audio, if you watch the scenes that I'm playing the audio from, Kanan and Ezra are teaching her defensive forms. Hu Yang is training her in offense. Now, she will need both to withstand the fight to come. I mean, we saw what she did earlier in the season. She didn't last very long against Shin Hati. We've seen and heard the trailer. Shin Hati says, you have no power. And she, you know, Sabine already lost one fight. It, it wasn't fatal. <laughs> it, it could have been, but it wasn't. Ahsoka wants to teach her using Zatochi. Now you type that in, even as it's spelled in the closed captioning, and you get a result on Google for Satoichi, a blind swordsman of the late Edo period. It's a fictional character, one that goes blind as a child. That fits here because Kanan was blind when he was teaching Sabine. He was blinded by Darth Maul on Malachor in Rebels. Ahsoka is going to teach Sabine using this fictional method. And it's one we've seen before. I can't see, how am I supposed to fight? <laughs> With the blast shield down, I can't even see. How am I supposed to fight? Your eyes can deceive you, don't trust them. Honestly, I am a little offended. I, I Do I have a right to be? Maybe not, but Filoni seems to be making this comparison to Luke. Even if he's trying to point out, yeah, she has no talent compared to Luke. Look, moments earlier, Sabine admitted she is awful. Your skill with a weapon comes from your Mandalorian upbringing. Those skills alone will not be enough to defeat our enemy. Yeah, I learned that the hard way. You're training the body, but you must also open your mind. Learning to wield the Force takes a deeper commitment. How? That's something you'll have to discover. Well, I discovered that according to Hu Yang, I'm the worst candidate to be a Jedi out of every Jedi he's ever known. You told her that? It's true. I'm not hating on the character of Sabine. I I'm a guy who grew up idolizing Luke Skywalker. I don't hate Sabine. I just don't think it's necessary to draw this comparison or make a reference 
especially since the underlying point is Sabine is much less powerful and much less talented. I understand the point. You don't have to have talent to make a difference. I just think there are better ways to write it, and I don't think Filoni gets it right here. The Sabine Force plot is one of writer convenience, not story necessity. It's a shortcut, I think. In the background on the weapon wall, we see those floating training pods that Luke used. Later, Rey will destroy one while training in Rise of Skywalker, and yet another reference to destroying the past. And I know, so many people love to deny that that is the intention by those lines. The line that's spoken about Kill the Past is, oh, it's the villain. You don't get it. The villain speaks it. Except it's Kylo Ren. And they forget that that villain quote, unquote, has a turn at the end to the light. And he literally helps the new hero kill the past actual villain. Who not only does not want the past to die, Palpatine does not want the past to die, he wants to control it and the future. But I'm getting off track here. Here in Ahsoka, in the training room, Sabine is flailing around wildly while she's wearing the blast shield. Contrary to what some podcasters and YouTubers say, I don't think there's any indication that she senses Ahsoka at all. I think it's like a broken clock here, you know, right twice a day. We see all the time she misses, and those are obvious. But when it looks like she might be on to her, I think that's confirmation bias. I think, okay, now she's getting close. She's not actually sensing anything. She's just now getting a little bit closer. I don't think she has any talent. I think she's reaching out with everything she's got, and it's the the bare minimum. But that doesn't mean Ahsoka shouldn't hold out hope. She points out what anyone who has seen the Force play out over the last 40-something years can tell you, maybe even paraphrasing Master Yoda while doing it and knocking Sabine over. Anger and frustration are quick to give power, but they also unbalance you. Let's go again. Elsewhere in the galaxy, Hera is on board Home One and goes to a hollow meeting with the Chancellor, Mon Mothma, and some high-ranking senators. One of those is Hamato Ziono, Kazuda's father. Kaz, Kaz Ziono, is a character we have not met in live action. At this point, he might still be a small child if he's born yet. The character is a young spy from the series Star Wars Resistance, which takes place right around The Forks Awakens. It's probably 20 years out from where we're at. Hera doesn't want to play politics. But once again, we have a situation where the story team really wants us to remember, hey, the New Republic, they're corrupt and ineffective, and they lead directly to why the, um, the First Order is able to take power. None of the politicians in the room have any idea what they're talking about when it comes to the Empire. And if they do, they're on the take. Why not track down Hera's information about the return of Thrawn? What is this appeasement of former Imperials supposed to pro provide? I mean, people like Ziono and the other senators must be making money. I don't understand how Mon Mothma could be so effective in wartime and then just so neutered here. 
There are reports of things happening. It's not that there are no incidents of former Imperials causing problems. It's just that they squash them whenever they come upon them. But there's no further investigation. The knee-jerk reaction is repeatedly one where the, the military is forced to look the other way. Heck, even our favorite captain has been known to look the other way on infractions, right? Uh, hold on a second there, Lieutenant. I think we can let him off with a warning this time. Hera's frustrated, but also, she's a general. So, her later lament to Ahsoka and Sabine that she can't help, it's really kind of BS. I mean, we build up Hera, and she's this, you know, really cool and really strong girl boss, but now she claims she doesn't like politics, but then she's going to listen to... Uh, the Senate, instead of bending the rules, after we just had an attack on a capital ship. I mean, there's a smoke trail here, but the Senators, with absolutely no intelligence to the contrary, and maybe no intelligence at all, claim this is not what Hera says it is, but instead, it's personal for her. General, be honest. Isn't this just another attempt to gain New Republic resources to aid in what has ultimately been your personal quest to find Ezra Bridger. Ezra vanished while fighting Thrawn. And that you conveniently use a threat of Thrawn's return to acquire those resources that could be put to a more practical purpose, helping the people of our fledgling Republic. Were you ever in the war, Senator? No. Just sat back and waited to see who came out on top? Look, it's... It's really bad writing if you analyze it. She she backtalks to the senators. Given that she's inclined to follow their instruction, now she's backtalking them during openly during the meeting. Kind of unbelievable. On top of that, the reasoning of the senators is, hey, we want to avoid war. But that's exactly why you would be inclined to investigate with what Hera requests. She's requesting a task force. Send the fleet out there, and then they can come right back if there's nothing. She's not requesting a full armada to wipe out a known threat. She's not requesting the full might of the New Republic. This is almost like a police captain hearing about a murder that one of his detectives saw take place, but then, hey, let's not send in any detectives. This is not Hera asking for a strike team that's going to stretch resources thin. If... As the Senators suppose, resources are needed elsewhere. Well, what for, if not this? Where is their other conflict? Where are the Senators themselves suggesting that this peace exists if things like that keep happening? This, there's, it's not like there's no evidence. There was an attack on a ship. One of the, the Senators says the Imperials are too scattered to be dangerous, except... The general has first-hand knowledge. Not second-hand, but the general was actually attacked by Imperial loyalists on a planet everyone assumed just gave oaths to the New Republic and had nothing to do with the Imperials. She heard with her own ears for the Empire. Again, this is not really well thought out by Filoni. I think he just had to get from point A to point B, and the straightest line was... Yeah, we'll just gloss over it. Again, the story team is also really leaning into the results that we already have set by the sequel films. 
they are not interested in doing any of the work, work that like Andor does, where they're showing some hints and they're really leaning on these uh, peripheral things and they, they develop them. No, no, no. He's just saying New Republic bad. Uh, they're the reason why the first, they, they're totally corrupt and first order. Where's the corruption? Well, we're just going to insinuate it. It's like they want us to believe the New Republic turned off the Imperial lights one night and then they turned on the New Republic lights the, the, the next morning and immediately lapsed into corruption with the New Republic. Where does their overconfidence come from? I mean, the last battle I think that we hear takes place is in is on Jakku, and it was a devastating battle, and none of the senators in the room served in the military anyway. Those battles meant nothing to them. Ziono is from Hosnian Prime, a rich world, according to New Canon. One that will pay for hubris by being shot out of the galaxy by the Starkiller base beam of death. I've spent most of my life fighting a war, and that's why I'm trying to convince you to help me prevent another one. Grand Admiral Thrawn is dead. And I'm sorry to say it is my opinion that your friend Ezra Bridger heroically died with him. You don't know that. General, Hera, allow me a moment to speak with my colleagues. Of course. Chancellor. Senators. So maybe it's not the writing. Maybe it's also bad acting. I don't know. I think it's the writing. Hera then walks out. We meet Jason in the hallway. Mon Mothma just asked about him before the meeting. And now we actually get to see the offspring of Hera and Kanan Jarrus. He's got to be force sensitive. I mean, this kid will absolutely have more attunement to the force than Auntie Sabine. If he trains, though, it'll probably be with Luke at his new school. Age is probably not a factor anymore, so though he might be Anakin's age, which was thought to be too old in the prequels for the Jedi back then, he would probably end up being able to train with Luke, and if he does, he's going to end up dead or part of the Knights of Ren, and so probably also dead by the end of the sequel trilogy. Mom, is it true Ansemine is going to be a Jedi? Now where did you hear that? Chopper told me. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be a Jedi. Yeah, I know you do, Jason. The problem is, that is reasonably what should happen, but Filoni probably won't let it happen. Sabine and Ahsoka have a chat back on the T6 in the common room when it's a table, and not a sparring dojo, and Ahsoka... I don't know, this entire conversation comes down to the first few minutes of the conversation, really. So, I'm just gonna play it. I can't use the Force. I don't feel it. Not like you do. The Force resides in all living things. Even you. If that's true, then why doesn't everyone use it? Talent is a factor. Yeah. I mean, sounds about right. I don't think I can really expand on it any more than the words actually tell us. Training and focus are what truly defines someone's success. Not everyone can handle the type of discipline it takes to master the ways of the Force. Hu Yang and Ahsoka then discuss Sabine's training in the cockpit of the T-6. Hu Yang's resolved. 
Ahsoka, she may be more helpful, which doesn't completely track with what we saw in The Mandalorian with Grogu, considering both Baby Yoda and Sabine, the overage teen, have attachment issues that they've got to work through. I only spoke the truth. The Jedi Order would not have accepted her. She is not an acceptable candidate. By their standards? Standards which were proven over a millennia. And failed. You realize, historically, there have been very few Mandalorians who ever became a Jedi. I don't need Sabine to be a Jedi. I need her to be herself. Well, I suppose you do come from a long line of non-traditional Jedi. I really feel like the terribly written response came right before a little acknowledgement by Hu Yang that Ahsoka is part of this failed line of Jedi teachers, or at least ones that helped lead to the downfall of the Order. I mean, it's like he puts the terrible line and then he gives us this little lore nugget. Seriously, think about Yoda teaching Dooku, who taught Qui-Gon, who taught Obi-Wan and Anakin, and Anakin learning from Obi-Wan, who wasn't ready to teach, and then Anakin falls to the dark side, but not before he taught Ahsoka, and Ahsoka left the Order, and she's going to do what? She's going to end up advising Luke? and teach Sabine. We don't need an Ahsoka redemption story here, though. She There's nothing for her to apologize for. Nothing to redeem. Not because that wouldn't be a great story, but because in this galaxy, we already know the ending of the story thanks to the sequels. They've already got The Force Awakens, Last Jedi, and The Rise of Skywalker. Ahsoka, sure, she could triumph, teach someone well, but it's not going to lead to the recreation of the Jedi Order. It will only affect this one person. And saving one person is great. Except it's part of a larger story, not a standalone with characters that we've only just met in this show. These are legacy characters pre-existing the Disney acquisition. Let's address the banter in the room. Honestly, the best part of the scene, maybe the episode is Sabine as a stand-in for all of us. All of us who ever dreamed of using the Force. I truly appreciate that she tries to summon the cup to her with the Force, and it doesn't even budge, even in the slightest. This is not a Captain America moves Thor's hammer moment, where it shifts a little bit, even in the slightest, and somebody notices. No, no, no. Sabine completely fails in her attempt, just like all of us did when we were alone, trying to lift rocks with our minds. Master, moving stones around is one thing. This is totally different. No, no different. Only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try. No, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. Hera, great. How far are you in the fleet? Unfortunately, I won't be joining you for this one. And neither will the fleet. What? The Senate committee wouldn't approve the mission. The Senate committee? What are you talking about? I'm sorry, Sabine. But it's not up to me. I don't follow the order. Hera? what's happened? We've entered the Denam system. All comm transmissions are being jammed. The radar, sir. It appears to be... Jammed. Jammed. Raspberry. There's only one man who would dare give me the raspberry. Lone Star! 
Again, what a way to neuter a character you were trying to show us was strong. I have to follow the Senate's orders. I mean, it's writing that's failing here. You build up Hera to be this strong female character, and then you show us she's weak here. Later, when it's convenient, I, I bet you I know what's going to happen. She'll end up being strong again. Hera's communications are cut short thanks to interference from the Danab system. Somebody knows you're coming. I mean, we're about to get some great starship battles. Hu Yang drops the T-6 out of hyperspace early, according to Ahsoka, but since it follows the Jedi playbook, that's basically where Shin and her fighter squadrons are waiting. I did like the back and forth and the teamwork during the fights between Ahsoka and Sabine. Woo! I got one! Good work! They're forming up. Let's roll them. Copy that. On my mark. Tell me when. It all works, but you got to remember the teamwork here is surrounded by battle and cool visuals. If that's the only time Star Wars works, that's a problem. Well, it's not because Andor's written well and there's very little fighting to punctuate that story, but the space dogfights are cool. I like that Shin seems to be wearing that same kind of mic that Anakin wore in Revenge of the Sith during his starship battling. How interesting. I would never have guessed that. Get everything you need? Not yet. See if you can get a little closer. Are you crosswire? Closer, please. Hu Yang's insistence on getting closer for a scan is a little funny. And I don't really mean funny haha. I mean, yeah, he's a droid, yes, and the line kind of plays funny, but this is a droid that was very interested in self-preservation back on Lethal last episode. You know, Sabine was messing with that HK droid head, right? Anyway, as I pointed out, it's a hyperspace ring for a very large ship, and Elsbeth has her ship docked at the apex of the ring, at least in reference to the orientation of the planet below. She calls for turbo lasers, and she actually does help momentarily disable Ahsoka's ship. Leave him. I need you to run a full diagnostic. I leave Prioritize him. Sabine. We can't help Yang if we're both dead. Now get on it. At first, I was wondering if they were going to show us the end of Hu Yang. 25,000 years of uh, survival, and then he gets shot inside the ship. But he will be okay. And the ensuing scene with Ahsoka heading out onto the wings with a specially designed spacesuit, it's absolutely ridiculous. But you know what? I liked it. This should be proof. Not everything has to make sense to me to be entertaining. It's just fun. I don't even care about the realism of the gravity. It's just cool to me that she heads out with these gravity boots on, lightsabers in hand, She's going to distract and deflect starship fire. Nonsense, all of it. Fun nonsense. I got it! I got it! Great! Now get me. So earlier, Sabine said, I got one. And Ahsoka said, great work. An echo of Luke in the Millennium Falcon getting one. And then Han telling him, you know, great, now don't get cocky. And then Sabine now boots up the ship, I guess reboots it. Ahsoka gets back inside just in time. And Sabine, you know, 
rotates the ship so that she can get back in, and then they start heading toward the surface of Cetus. On the way through the clouds... I'm tracking something up ahead. Another ship? No. What? What is it? It's the Purgle. If you are still confused about them, you're going to have to listen to some of my previous Ahsoka podcasts. I've already talked about them. They're space whales or star whales that can travel through hyperspace without any mechanical aid. They may have been the creatures that inspired or began the study of how to use the lanes for traveling. Along with loath wolves, those are creatures that can use the force naturally, so... These are the only two creatures that we know can travel through space and time naturally. In a way, these Purgle come to the aid of Sabine and Ahsoka by basically running interference on Shin's squadron. I don't know that that was intentional. Maybe it was just a benefit, but it gives them time to sit down and regroup their thoughts in the forest. We're in pretty bad shape. Better set us down. And complete. Oh. Took my battery back up a while to cycle, I suppose. What did I miss? Ahsoka and Sabine are not the only ones that are going to use that time to regroup. Maroc is heard once again, and as we've pointed out several times, it's just Maroc. I don't think it's Ezra or Kanan. The credit is gone to Paul Darnell. According to the StarWars.com website, Maroc is just a former Inquisitor. Could that be misdirection? Absolutely. Occam's Razor, though. Easiest, simplest explanation, probably correct. Any sign of them? Nothing. They must be hiding in the forest. Let's regroup. Ahsoka had turned off Hu Yang, but now they're going to take a chance and switch back on their computers and switch him back on. And then he starts to discuss what his scans revealed. He says six engines are already in place with the final one being put in place, but we heard earlier... There were nine engines on Corellia, and then I counted four on each side of his scanned hollow image, and a ninth installing at the base. Hu Yang starts speaking of the crafting of the ring for galactic hyperspace travel, but Ahsoka casually asks about intergalactic travel, and Hu Yang doesn't miss a beat. Craft with these power levels and configuration would be capable of a hyperspace jump of astonishing speed and distance. Yang could a ring like that make a jump to a neighboring galaxy? Theoretically, if one knew the coordinates and navigation, yes, I believe it could. The Jedi archives speak of intergalactic hyperspace lanes between galaxies, which used to follow the migration paths of star whales named Purgle. Like the ones we just saw. Really? When? You thought I was going to play Beastie Boys there, didn't you? Yeah, I almost did. It's played a little too loosely here. Okay, Obi-Wan had to go way deep into the archive in the prequels, and he couldn't even find this planet being hidden from him, but suddenly, Purgle are well known enough to be something that a lightsaber droid just kind of has stored in his memory banks, just in case. <laughs> like what? Is someone uh, looking to craft their lightsaber? They want to get a really special piece from outside of the galaxy? Now, I'm not saying Purgle should be myth. 
but as the first live-action show to focus attention on them. And yes, I know they appeared in The Mandalorian in live-action, and I know they were focused a lot in Rebels, but that's Filoni's storytelling. We're directly referencing them here. We're using them as a main plot point for intergalactic travel, but we've never heard of them in any live-action before. This is the first live-action show or movie or anything to use them. This, it seems way too convenient for Hu Yang to have knowledge like this at the ready. I admit, I don't know how else you make the reveal for the audience, but I think maybe it could have been done just by Sabine and Hera, who saw them before, and if not here in this moment, right, because Hera's not part of the conversation, you could do it sometime later, or even you could have done it last episode when they were discussing the map and how it led to another galaxy. Wasn't Hu Yang there in the room when Sabine pointed it out when she was on the, the hospital bed? Anyway, there's not much left to the episode. Shin and Marak are off scanning in starships, streaking across the Cetas surface, but Balin sends troops out to search the forest for the hiding Jedi and the Jedi's apprentice. The Jedi have taken refuge in the forest. Hunt them down. He's not. He's okay, what do you think? Balin and Shin are more compelling to me than the search for Ezra and Thrawn, and I'm not sure that that's Filoni's intention or hope. Now, he may have a sense for story, but he's just not telling it well, and can I be honest with you for a moment? I worry that that's my curse as well. I think I'd be a lot better directing the story of Star Wars more so than anyone, even Favreau or Filoni or even some of the weird, wacky ideas that Lucas has had. I'm basing this off the original trilogy only. But my fear, the dark side that holds me back from creating, what if you can't figure out how to actually tell that story you have well? Well, first of all, I'm not telling a story in Star Wars. Disney will sue the pants off me and anyone else. I'm talking, though, about this creative process. Filoni has this story in mind, and I feel funny criticizing him. He gets paid very well, though, and he's got a bunch of people around him, and he gets to do the creating that we all have to accept as fact. Now, I'm not getting paid, and you're not getting paid. In fact, the audience isn't getting paid. We are paying, and sometimes we're paying a lot. I mean, it's a subscription service. It's designed to take our money. I think that is enough to ask that, okay, the story's got to be better. The, the writing has to be better. The story has to fit together better. I think that's enough to expect better than we're getting with Ahsoka so far. So here's what I'm expecting to happen in the story. I think we're going to see Shin and Sabine fight next episode but that's based on what we saw in the trailers and the clips. I also think next episode's when we're going to see Balin and Ahsoka fight, like we saw in the trailers and clips. So those two, or those four, are fighting two at a time. What's Marak's purpose then? We also see Ahsoka fight Marak. So where is he? It, does he come first, or does he come second? He probably comes first, right? But then that will leave Sabine. 
Does Sabine lose or is she captured? And then Ahsoka wins her battle with Maroc and then moves on to Balin. Is Maroc going to be instead, is he going to be unmasked? Will he be just killed? Will he end up being tasked or will he head off with Morgan Elsbeth? We can't be through with Hera either. Who is she going to go to though? You, I don't think they're going to send her off to Luke. I don't think they're going to send her off to Leia because as much as that makes sense, we might just get a reference to Leia or a reference to Luke. Same thing with Han and Chewie. There's no way they're going to give us a live action version of them. I, I just don't think we can have that. So, is Hera going to seek out help from a pirate? Like Hondo Anaka? Maybe Hera has to track down Maz Kanata. Maybe they head to a place that Purgle are feeding on gas. Like Bespin, Cloud City. And maybe Maz finds something interesting on the planet's surface or floating inside the gas giant. Something that she holds on to in a little chest for another 20 or so years before someone finds it in her basement. It's a treasure for the true aficionado. How's that for some wild speculation? Part 4 comes out Tuesday, September 5th. And again, it's Tuesdays from here until Part 8 on October 3rd. Now, let me know what you think about Ahsoka, my discussion, where you think the show will go from here, my speculation... You can send feedback or comments via email at thiswaypodcast at gmail.com. Yes, you can send it on Twitter and Instagram at thisisthewaypod or on facebook.com forward slash thisisthewaypod. And our Linktree site has all links, l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash thisisthewaypod. Email, that is always going to be the best way to make sure that I see it. And please, if you contact me, let me know if you want me to share that and want me to credit you with your first name, last initial, and where you're from. Thank you for joining me for the third episode of Ahsoka Time to Fly. I'm your host, Steve Lascalzo, and this is the way. May the Force be with you, always. Always.